This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. I've got Vivian on the line to tell us all about what's coming up tonight. Can you hear me there, Viv? I can, Andy. Thanks yeah. for doing this show. No, it's going right. to be, yeah, it's going to be good. It takes us to three different places in the world with inspiring stories about lowering our carbon footprint. Awesome. And um, the last speaker, if listeners want to hang in there at 5.40, is really interesting. It's Tom Delaney. He's gone back to India now, but I interviewed him. Now, he really walks the talk on low-carbon living, and he's an Australian, but he grew up in the slums of Delhi, so he mm-hmm. has this... The name rings a bell. Did we interview him last year? Or? No, his father. We interviewed his father. Okay. And the father's just been here doing a kind of launch of their book about low-carbon living, and, and what the main message they have is Australians have a carbon footprint. Each of us has a carbon footprint of 23 uh, tons per person, whereas a person in India has two tons, and and they, you know, they were really, yeah. And he, I think he's really entitled to talk to us because he is an Australian person, he's middle class young man, and he he just said, oh, you know, climate change has really made me put my thinking cap on, and he's done some deep thinking about how we can do it. So it's really quite interesting. People might just think, how it's not going to be the end of the world if we cut down our carbon footprint. Um, when you listen to him, you realise it's well, there's you know, quite a lot of things we can all do. Yeah. And then at uh, 5.15 in the middle, we've got a... Um, our gardeners are going to love this. This is Michael Abelman. I had such fun talking to him. He'd come out from Canada where he does these sort of urban farming things. And he has people... It's really in the Skid Row part of Vancouver. And he, they have tons of food they produce. But the main thing, it's a sort of social enterprise... There's people who have got mental illness or long-term drug addiction. Yeah, he trains them, and and they're they're all farmers now. And um, Mm. and he said it was crazy that so few people are involved in growing our food. It's sort of just under two percent of the of the population grows food. And and he said we're suffering a crisis of participation. You know, more people need to get involved mm. and and can get involved. And he thinks the farmers of the future will need different skills like, number one, not just growing food, but sequestering carbon and sponging up the water. So they need to have skills of retaining water in the land and uh, keeping the carbon in there. Yeah, right. And so it was really fun to talk to you. I was sitting down by the Yarra River at the Sustainable Living Festival. He was a really dynamic speaker. He laughed a lot. And it was just, oh, I think listeners will really love that. This will be a really good podcast one, this interview. Awesome. And uh, But the first one we're going to start with it takes us to Western Australia. And um, I really enjoyed talking to this woman. Her name is Frances Jones. And she and her partner, they've got, you can't imagine that she's got a, they've got a pastoral lease of half a million hectares. You know, it's just a huge amount of land. It looks kind of desert sort of land in a way, but it's a, they've got a pastoral lease to run cattle. And they were on that TV show, Australian Story, because what they did was actually destocked it. They got rid of all the cattle for quite a few years and have started to regenerate the land. And they've got a small tourism business, but they're actually regenerating the land, which is keeping carbon in the land, which right. is, from our point of view, very yeah. important for climate change. 
action. So I think listeners will like that. And at the end, Andy, Andy I want um, listeners to really um, have a pen and paper ready because Andy's going to tell you all the details. We've had a message from the Wangam um, Jagalingo people and they're in court today. So Andy will tell you the details. They want us to help them. And, and if you just have a pen and paper ready, take down the details. Sweet. Awesome. <laughs> Sounds really good. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, it'll be good. So thanks, Andy. No worries. All right. Thanks, Vivian. And here's Francis Jones. Enjoy. Francis Jones is a farmer from Western Australia. With her partner, David Pollock, she manages half a million acres about seven hours' drive north of Perth. They are famous for destocking woolleen and nursing it back to health, and they were featured on Australian Story TV. So I'm very pleased that you listeners are going to hear their story, even though you can't see the place, and I hope Francis will sort of describe it for us. Uh, thanks for coming to the Sustainable Living Festival, Francis, and I know at BZE we're interested in climate action and you're doing more than that, but your rehabilitation of the land is very ambitious. So can you tell us how you did it? <laughs> oh, thanks for having me here. Um, we're going to get uh, at Wolaine, um, our philosophy is uh, yeah, de- de-stocking the landscape to enable it to regenerate in its own way. You know, where we live in WA, it's classed as a semi-arid environment. We only get about 200 mils of rain a year, if we're lucky, because it is just an average. It's not a guarantee. So, And given how vast, as you just said, you know, the size of Woolene Station, it's a very vast area, so it's very hard to um, economically implement, you know, rehab techniques because the cost of it is, is just... Yeah, you, you, you just couldn't do it really. So, yeah, so destocking and allowing the land to come back itself is the way that we do it. And I guess historically the reason that's even necessary, you know, we're a pastoral lease. Um, 80% of Western Australia is under pastoral lease and that is governed by the Land Administration Act. So we've, we've got quite a lot of laws and regulations that say what we can and can't do with the land. Um, and so basically it must be used for pastoralism. So for 130, nearly 140 years now, that is what the land has been used for. Um, and sadly, I guess, you know, and we've probably seen it in all sorts of places around Australia, the, um, you know, the early settlers that came out, they just didn't really know what was the best way um, to farm the land. Um, you know, they did the best they could with what they had at the time, but unfortunately it just wasn't suited to our fragile outback landscape. <laughs> no, so your story's like a pathfinder for other people because I think a lot of the northern rangelands in Australia too are being flogged to death, you know, and it's all for beef exports and so on, but a lot of animals I've heard starve in that situation too when, the, when there just is a drought, they're managed by helicopter. It's really not ideal for the animals and it's... It's exactly. short-term profits, not, it's not good. We're not looking at the long-term, yeah, and I think that's a really important point you raise. And, and I guess it'd be um, you know, a good, good place to say that Dave and I are very much for pastoralism. Um, you know, our ultimate goal is to find a sustainable way to run beef in the rangeland. But you're right, the way that we're currently doing it, um, we just don't take our environment into consideration. I mean, hear people praying for rain or crying drought, and I know those things are, like, they are a reality and they do happen, but 
you know, we've been in Australia long enough now to know that drought is a normal cycle, it's a normal pattern, um, and we need to change our management techniques to allow for those times so that when we do fall into a drought cycle and we're not getting our average rainfall, how can we adjust our stocking rates, our management practices? How can we ensure that the land is always the number one resource that's looked after um, so that going into the future we don't ever, we're not, you know, reducing that resource. It is actually a renewable resource that we can keep using into the future. Our program and the Beyond Zero Emissions Project and I think a lot of the people at Sustainable Living Festival is all about the future and it's very urgent that we don't exacerbate the droughts and floods and, you know, very, very dramatic weather, which is what climate change really means. It's, you know, it's intensifying everything, the patterns that are already there, it intensifies them. And from photos Mm. of your property, it looks like dry, red, dusty, but you are bringing back vegetation since you've destocked, aren't you, and water. Could you just describe that to the listeners? Because I think it's a very Mm. positive idea that you may have some cattle there or livestock, but not on the whole place, not on the whole property, and you're allowing the natural water flow and vegetation to come back, which is good for carbon sequestration. Yeah, absolutely. So we do, we have got a very small herd of cows at the moment, but I guess over the last 10 years, which is the time frame that Dave and I have had management now at Woolleam since his parents, you know, we've we've been destocked for at least completely decent on an animal on the property for at least half of that time and for the other half we've just had small herds that come through. And I think a lot of people get that vision in their mind of, you know, the outback and big dusty plains that have got yeah. nothing on them. But reality is it shouldn't really look like that. Um, you know, we really should have beautiful perennial grass species that grow in between lots of the blue bush and salt bush and all those small shrubs. So what we're finding at the moment and, and what people have come to accept as normal, which isn't, is that, you know, you have your tall canopy, which is mostly mulga. Mulga shrublands is what most of Australian rangelands comprise of. So we've got our mulga and then we're completely missing that understory. That's gone. And when we're, we're moving almost to a system where we're relying on the annuals, we're really rangelands. Rangelands should be made up of all these really healthy, diverse, perennial plants. And not only are they very fantastic form pastoralism and grazing if done the right way, but they're just really integral to the ecosystems and habitats for the native fauna and flora, you know, as well in the area. So we've really started, there's a couple of areas we focused really heavily on because we could see that they were areas we'd see the biggest amount of return on, you know, in terms of recovery. So we've got, um, we're very fortunate to have a wetland on Woolley, um, which I guess is a bit bizarre in the outback, but <laughs> it's, uh, so we've got a, the Woolleen Lake, and that's a nationally important wetland. So the lake, on average, it only fills with water once every 10 years. We sometimes refer to it as our mini, mini lake air, I guess. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> when it does fill, it is one of those places where just hundreds of thousands of birds come for breeding and mm-hmm. nesting, and, and it's quite spectacular. Um, and it has a specific species of grass that grows on it we call Sporobolus mitchelli. It looks like a native cooch, and that's so adapted to our landscape, you know, and it, and it thrives brilliantly if it's managed in a way that it can continue to thrive, and so so we found at Moulin that, you know, successive years of grazing, um, it, it had almost completely been removed from the lake bed. There was 
hardly anything left and anything that was there was eaten down to within a couple of millimetres of the ground. So just by removing the stock from that and carefully managing, and it's not just it's our total grazing pressure, so how do we have a look at the way that we've changed the landscape and how that influences as well on the native animals that are around, mm-hmm. the feral animals, so we've had to cope with feral goats. We've got all our you know, native herbivores, that, you know, the kangaroos that exist there as well, as, as well as your domesticated stock. So how do we have a look at the impact of the total grazing pressure? But yeah, in 10 years now, we've seen amazing recovery of this grass species spreading great, you know, out over the lake again. Always to some photos, people say, oh, it looks like a nice big crop, you know. <laughs> this beautiful big, you know, two foot tall stands of grass that just yeah. got us. Um, so, you know, it, it's happening, it's very slow, it's taken us 10 years just to get to there and we're starting to see that understory coming back yeah. out in the Mulga. But look, there's areas, Dave and I think, perhaps we won't see it recover in our lifetime. We're not We're not sure yet, we're taking each year as it comes and seeing what, what comes back with the seasons yeah. and, and careful management. Yeah, It's good that you're re- rational about it like that because the damage of 100, and, 100 plus mm. years has to take longer to restore but the theme I'm, I'm going to try on all my radio programs this year is about restoration because our, our generation we have to restore lots of things lots of systems that are, have become degraded and we can't go on you know we're talking about planetary boundaries mm. all the time that we're reaching and hitting up against and one of them is the land that's been flogged yeah. and I think you mentioned kangaroos and uh, wild goats but uh, I was on a farm just recently up near yeah. Tamworth and they said oh they, they have a terrible problem because of the, the water because they've laid on water and they do that yeah. rotational grazing where they yeah. you know move the cows on all the, every day but yeah. they, because they've got water laid on the kangaroos are exploding the population's exploding and I don't think they get wild goats but is that the same for you that they're attracted yeah. by the water? That's it, we thought, you know, I mean, Woolene being semi-arid, we previously didn't have any permanent water sources on, on the property in our area, so the seasons dictated really what could and couldn't survive there. So in a good season, if there was water in the rivers or the, or the lake, then of course animal life could really thrive. But in those hot summers when our temperatures are up in the high 40s, I mean, prior to man-made watering points. I mean, it just wouldn't have been possible for some of those animals to survive out there. And some of them obviously would have moved off into other areas, you know, migrate around a little bit. Mm. So giving them access to that permanent water has been huge. And, and another issue that Dave and I have sort of identified now over the last few years that's also led to their numbers exploding. And it is a bit of a controversial one, but, you know, the use of apex predators in landscape rehabilitation as well is just so important because, you know, the dingo is an animal that has been removed from a lot of Australia's agricultural regions. But for us, that's the predator of the kangaroo. So we've taken away its predator and we've introduced endless quantities of water for it, along with all the other domesticated and feral animals as well. And so, you know, if... All these things combined, it has really led to the current situation we find a lot of the um, partial areas in now. What I'm interested in really is is climate action and Mm. the alternatives for land. You know, you said the Western Australian government sort of locked you into a pastoral lease. You know, you're obliged to have cows there, though it doesn't really sound very suitable at the moment a lot of that land to be grazed and yet they're still obliging you by your lease to have some there. I think there must be alternatives for land management now, maybe tourism or I think um, carbon farming would be like an important, that's a necessity for our generation, you know, for this century we need to draw down. Well, Um, no, and and we, you know, we would completely agree with you and and it's something Dave and I have sort of 
fought and I've been a little bit vocal with over the years is, you know, there are lots of other land uses in our area, whether it is, you know, conservation, tourism, carbon farming. I mean, I bet there's industries that could exist out there that we haven't even comprehended yet because we've never been given that opportunity to think outside the square of pastoralism. And it's a really big thing that's sort of been on the table um, in WA now for such a long time, yet we just no government really seems that interested in getting it over the line to change the Land Administration Act and enable us to have different types of partial leases and there are a lot of things like it is quite a complex issue and I I couldn't even begin to go into it now with you but you know I mean native title and there's so many things that affect that um, land administration act but it shouldn't matter how complex the issue or the task is you know if we're looking at future sustainability and we want to ensure that the rangelands are there for people to enjoy in 100, 200 300 years time it needs to be tackled and it's not even just about enjoying them I mean food security is a growing issue all of the time, our endangered species like there's so many things that you know are urgent that need to be tackled and we sort of see, I mean carbon farming we're really hoping that's possible, again under the Land Administration Act we only lease the right to graze the vegetation so we, our lease doesn't allow us to farm carbon into the ground, it's not something that the lease currently enables us to do but you know, there's a big growing group of people pushing the West Australian government to change that. And we see, I mean, carbon farming really is a way of recognising, isn't it, that we need to we need to put more time and resources into, you know, reducing those emissions or at least trying to offset them. It's a way of saying we value our environment. Yeah, as you said, yeah. you have been restoring that land and I think, mm. you know, you, you all of those, you said you've got the canopy and the understory, well, now the middle group of plants has to have time mm. to grow in and I think you should be given a stewardship payment. I don't know how how you do finance your life there, but, you know, that, I, I would think that this, you should be the, you know, the next Australian should be, story should be about how it would be in the interest of the, na- the nation to finance people to manage that land better and restore it. Well, yeah, I mean, stewardship is certainly something that's been brought up um, in the past and there are other countries in the world that do pay stewardship payments um, to ensure, you know, with a very strict set of, you know, guidelines and KPIs that need to be met, yeah. you know, in order to do that. But, there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that if they are met. Um, and carbon farming, again, it is a perfect way to, you know, to measure and look really closely at the landscape and, and show that we're achieving those outcomes and hitting those goals. Right. Well, look, I hope we can come back to you in another few years, not 10 years, yeah. maybe <laughs> five, and, and, yeah. and see bigger improvements on your place and also the idea spreading. At the Sustainable Living Festival, there's another guy speaking called Paul Hawken, and his book, mm-hmm. Drawdown, has about, oh, I don't know, about 12 chapters on land-based carbon drawdown, you know, how to draw yeah. down in different rotational grazings, one regenerative agriculture, what you're doing is is um, really hot high on his list of things that at scale, yeah. at global scale, would draw down a huge amount of carbon and, and help us prevent the worst happening. So I'm mm. really, really pleased you're speaking to a Melbourne audience here and yeah. now through this podcast, you know, to a wider audience again and really keep going what you're doing. It sounds terrific. Thank you for oh. talking to us. No, that's all right. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, Francis. Bye-bye. Thanks, Vivian.
And that was Francis Jones, who's a farmer out in Western Australia at a property called Woolene. Michael Abelman is a farmer and author of many books celebrating growing food around the world, including in cities where he turns parking lots and vacant land into hopeful, productive places. He's at the Sustainable Living Festival, uh, coming from Vancouver, where he directs a, an enterprise called Soul Foods. So I'm very happy to meet him. Welcome, Michael. How are you? Very nice to be with you. Thank you. Yeah. Look, this is a radio show, and so we need a picture, a word picture. And uh, listeners could go to Soul Food, it's spelt S-O-L-E, um, website to look at pictures. But could you describe how you have created tons of food and many smiling faces in a slum called Low Track in Vancouver? What does it look like? Yeah, well, the downtown east side of Vancouver, where we uh, operate our farms, is uh, the neighborhood where the term skid row was coined. It's actually a logging term, but it's uh, it's the poorest postal code in all of Canada. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, right in the heart of one of the wealthiest cities in the world. Um, uh, it is about 15 square blocks, entirely inhabited by folks who are dealing with long-term addiction, mental illness, um, and material poverty. And uh, about nine years ago, we started on a half-acre uh, parking lot next to one of the dive hotels, and we built um, and developed our system, which we're now doing on uh, four, four and a half acres. Uh, we're producing 25 tons of food annually, employing uh, up to 30 people, all of whom are dealing with uh, addiction and mental illness issues. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, uh, success is an interesting word. I, I'm, I'm not sure um, uh, that I would define uh, our accomplishments in terms of success because I see success in, incre in an incremental way, you know. We certainly provide a very interesting model, uh, both socially and agriculturally. Socially, how, you know, is it possible that growing food... Uh, uh, is an enterprise that could help people um, who are dealing with significant barriers to um, to feel a greater sense of purpose and um, and also is it possible that small scale agricultural enterprises on pavement or in the city can can um, be viable you know and I think we've demonstrated to some degree that both the answer would be yes to both yeah. those questions you know well, what about contaminated soil uh, in your in the pictures I've seen all the food is grown in boxes but where do you get the soil from yeah so most cities in the world there are very very few I, I don't think there are any exceptions uh, most of the native soil is too contaminated to grow in you know and for various reasons or uh, with various substances, I'm not going to get into that, but it's fairly... The other issue in most cities is that, um, especially coastal cities, that the land is too valuable uh, for landowners, whether they be private developers or municipal landowners, to make them available for farming. Uh, and the third thing, of course, is pavement. Most, you know, a lot of land in cities is paved over. So we developed a, a system... Uh, that essentially addresses all three of those issues in one elegant design component. And it's it's appears very simple. There was actually a surprising amount of thought and years that went into it. Yeah. It's a box. It's uh, made with recycled plastic. Um, it has uh, forklift tabs so they can be moved on short notice. They're stackable. They're nestable. They have interconnected drains. And we fill them full of soil that is made from Vancouver's waste by a company about a half an hour away. 
and uh, that becomes the foundation, the basis for, for our growing. Obviously, the, the challenge is maintaining soil fertility in that mm-hmm. environment, which we're learning how to do. Yeah. So. That's fantastic. And I, I have heard that um, Cuba, in Cuba, Havana City, grows 70% of its um, food requirements for the city. I don't suppose it's a big population there. I've been to Havana, but I, and, I, and it wasn't growing then, but I think they have had to, out of necessity, become more creative. Can you tell us about places where, you know, crisis has forced a, this kind of innovation? Yeah, I mean, you know, in 1989, which the Cubans referred to as a special period, um, Cuba almost overnight lost all of its supplies of um, basic foodstuffs, uh, agricultural machinery, chemicals, etc., seeds, uh, which were coming from the Soviet Union. Uh, and this was potentially uh, a uh, dramatic crisis. A whole nation was poised to starve. Uh, fortunately, there had been a few individuals in government who had been studying sustainable agriculture methods and approaches and techniques. And uh, they were given the responsibility of trying to rethink this thing. And, and virtually overnight, Cuba uh, began the process of greening their rural agriculture. But they did something else, and that was they began to see the essential importance of feeding people where they were. Uh, and so they developed what is essentially the largest scale urban agricultural uh, um, production enterprise you'll see anywhere. Uh, very creative, very innovative. Uh, this was not done out of because it was the right thing to do or because it was cool or hip or you know people mm. wanted. It was out of in complete and entire necessity. Um, and I like to say that you know, uh, and f- pretty much for most of us. Uh, until our sense of personal comfort is threatened, until the basic fundamental needs that we have are not readily available, uh, there's not a lot of incentive for us to change. Uh, The Cuban uh, situation is a good example of what happens when a crisis forces change, and it gives me hope, because I think that humans have a great capacity for ingenuity uh, and for change under duress. And we have a lot of examples of that. Cuba is not the only one, you know, throughout history. A lot of people say we need system change, not climate change. And one of the systems I notice in agriculture is agribusiness. And I go around and interview people, and I like something you said about pesticides in one of your books. Um, you said that uh, some people seem to feel that farmers are like army generals out in the field fighting an endless invasive uh, (laughs) invasion of uh, pests and diseases and yet agribusiness does rely on pesticides and fertilizer and I wonder now how do do your urban farmers find fend off you know insects and pests and what's your thoughts about um, agribusiness in contrast to what you're doing? Well, the last question first. I mean, the you know the truth is that <laughs> we don't spend a lot of time uh, thinking about or dealing with pests and diseases because really, it, uh, when the um, the basic foundation, which is in the soil, is taken care of, and you're providing plants with uh, uh, a, the opportunity to maintain their health, it's no different than us if you. If you don't eat well for long periods of time, and you stress yourselves out, or you, you know, you eventually you get sick. Um, you know, if we provide plants with the opportunity to be healthy, uh, they're planted in well-balanced, fertile soils. Um, 
uh, the disease and press pressures are almost non-existent. There are, don't get me wrong, we do have occasional problems, but we deal with them in ways that are not invasive. <clears throat> and in fact, the organic growers have a vir virtual arsenal available to them of biological and botanical controls. But every time you in interfere, you are um, essentially creating a set of reactions and interactions that in some cases you don't see. And it, there's a responsibility when you do that. And uh, my position is to um, not interfere yeah. and to, unless there is a major economic threshold that is reached, we try to stay out and uh, just watch and wait. Look, there are some less invasive systems, exclusion being one of the better ones, you know. Kinds of things. Netting over trees. Netting, fences for larger, yeah. you know, ungulates like deer. Uh, uh, we have uh, row covers, cloth row covers. We have things like tanglefoot to keep ants out of trees that carry other insects. You know, there's a whole range of less invasive approaches yeah. that can be used. You know, my position on industrial agriculture is... <laughs> Most of what we know of industrial agriculture came out of the technology of World War One and World War Two. You know, it's a very short-term experiment. It's only been around for 75, 80 years, um, and it. But it hasn't taken long to see that the impacts are quite terrifying and disastrous in many ways. And I'm not just talking about personal health. I mean, we know that there is a absolute and strong. Uh, inextricable connection between the high rates of cancer and um, many of the substances that are used to grow our food. We also know that that industrial agriculture uh, treats soil as if it was this lifeless medium to hold the plants up in the air, and it, it's there's the result of that has been incredibly devastating. Groundwater pollution, devastation to our topsoil, which is really what we all rely on. And the social and cultural changes that have happened as a result of displacing people from what were agrarian societies and moving them into cities, there's a, there's a huge disconnection right now. And a lot of that happened because of the industrialization of agriculture and the mass migration that took place as a result of that. You know, we no longer needed people to participate in how food came to them. So now we have 1.5% of the population growing food for the rest. The result of that, in order to do that, you have to turn yourself into contortions yeah. to do that work and rely on things that we should not be relying on. Yeah. I saw a film with a French farmer and he was managing two farms, you know, quite a big acreage, just with one, where he, he had a lot of machinery, but it was just him harvesting, sowing, everything. Well, anyway. It's a lonely life, that. that he said that. Yeah. yeah, it's a lonely life, yeah. Well, look, um, one of the things Paul Hawken at this festival has been saying, he's got this book, Drawdown, and uh, all different things to draw down carbon or carbon equivalent. And one of the things that surprised me was nitrogen fertilizer. And he said that he estimated we could reduce 1.8 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent by reducing, just reducing the overuse of fertilizers. He didn't say abandon fertilizers altogether, but just reduce the overuse. And he, there's a photo in his book of the massive blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I know Paul. I mean, he's, I've known him for years. In fact, he wrote a nice piece for, for my latest book. And I think that uh, he's really onto something here. I mean, we are... Um, I don't believe there are great mysteries around why we find ourselves facing a catastrophic, really, uh, a climate change. The thing is that it would be one thing if we did not have alternative models that were already in place that demonstrated, for example, how to grow 
massive amounts of food without the use of any chemical fertilizers or um, synthetic fertilizers. There are examples on every scale from, you know, the one or two acres to the 4,000 acre farms that are doing this quite successfully. So we have the models. We need them to be replicated. We need to accept the hard reality that we are, we, that the crisis is not somewhere off in the future, but it's now. And we need to all recognize that we are all part of that, pro- that problem, but we are equally part of the potential solution. And I think that there are a remarkable number of common sense, simple s- solutions that can have an impact on this, you know. You know Alternatives to fertilizer. Alternatives to fertilizers, is a, it's very simple. I mean, we, the, the foundation of most production organic farming is in the soil. So we feed the soil uh, through a number of ways that are simply mimicking what nature does already. Cover crops, very low impact system. You know, we're not haul- it does not require hauling in vast amounts of bulk materials like people perceive, you know, like we have to bring in, you know, semi loads of compost or this or that. No, it's about developing systems that allow you to work within the farm as a, as a self-containing system. For cover cropping is a great one. Crop rotations, long-term crop rotations, okay, extending those rotations. Crop selections, you know. Uh, integration of livestock in a, in a very careful and, and um, uh, thoughtful way. Uh, very important, you know. I'm not... Uh, I, w- I did 15 years when I was a very young man as a vegetarian, and I have come to see that it is impossible for us to uh, eat a plant-based diet without animals in the system, you know. So the idea that we're solving the problem by just eating plants uh, is not necessarily an accurate idea because we need animals in order to support the fertility cycle of the plants. It's essential. So this is a big contentious issue here. This is huge, the on zero rotor land use plan, and we advise a destocking, you know, just a reduction of the total load of livestock, especially because in Australia it's grazed on rangelands that just turned into dust bowls. That that soil is not enriched at all. Fair enough. And then in these uh, feedlots, and then it's exported beef. So we advise just a, a reduction in the total livestock load in the country but a lot of people just were outraged by that and um, we shouldn't eat meat is the answer well you know just explain a bit more about that because it is highly controversial well I would use the word rethinking rather than reduction because I think we need to rethink the systems that we use to incorporate livestock into our our broader agricultural and ecological systems Uh, this takes some some careful thinking. Fortunately, once again, there are people who have really done the work and been working on these systems for a long time. But we really need to understand uh, not only stocking rates, but uh, rotational planning for for livestock. And you know what is appropriate to do where. You know, and what landscapes can handle what stocking rates and not. And uh, there there are people like you know Joel Salatin, who's done great work in the states to model. Some of these systems, uh, Alan Savory, I think, in, in his own way, has, is, uh, through holistic land management, has done a great job in getting us to, to look at how native species of animals moved across the landscape before we arrived <laughs> and how we might mimic that system. Everything that I'm talking about exists nat- within natural systems, ecologies. 
we just need to apply very careful mimicry yeah. to those systems and understand our limitations, approach these systems with some humility, which is something we don't have much of, you know, and recognize that we, as Wendell Berry says, we don't know what we're doing because we don't know what we're undoing. And I think that if we can start from that and approach, as I like to tell people, our food system, our farms if we're farmers, our gardens if we're gardeners, uh, if we're ranches, our ranches, approach them with a beginner's mind. In other words, recognize with some humility that um, there are there is a knowledge base far greater than ourselves that if we take the time to slow down and respond to observation rather than some pre-prescribed methodology mm. that we can move into the slipstream of our farms and our ranches and our gardens rather than trying to control them we become a part of the system you know would you like to see more people on the land you know this next generation of people you know you've talked about these one farmer farms would you like to see more people actually being employed so it's more people intensive well absolutely i mean look um you know this is in the end i say we don't have a so much of a food crisis or an agricultural crisis or maybe even an ecological crisis. What we have is a crisis of participation. <laughs> you know, everybody's sitting on the sidelines uh, like they went to the movies, you know. And so this is the real issue. You know, look, when 1.5% of the population is trying to grow the food for the rest, we got problems. You, you cannot solve all of these issues. Every one of them stems from that and that alone. Like, when that is resolved, when we... We increase participation, we increase understanding, we increase observation, then we can start to resolve these issues. Okay. My last question is for one of our country listeners called Babette. And you wrote something about persimmons <laughs> in your book. And Babette loves persimmons. She's a French person. And she lives in this country town where everyone's got persimmons growing up and down there, you know, verge. But they just drop to the ground and rot because people don't like them. And uh, I thought you, you wrote a really funny little article about that, but you said also persimmons are telling Vancouver something about climate change. I think you delivered some to the <laughs> Lord Mayor. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten about that. Uh, well, look, you know, um, I'm my whole life has been about uh, stretching the limits and the edges and pushing. You know, if somebody says this can't be done, then, of course, I want to do it, you know. So, within reason, uh, I, uh, you know, in Vancouver, we planted a one-acre orchard in boxes on pavement. And I thought, well, you know, we're going to stretch it here. We're going to see what's possible. Persimmons are a subtropical crop. They do not grow normally in Vancouver. But here we were on pavement in the city with its heat effect, in raised boxes, which also provides a lot of benefit. And I thought it was possible. And sure enough... Uh, and I, of course, I told all our funders who helped us set this up that absolutely it was going to work, having no idea <laughs> what I was doing. But within th uh, three years, we had uh, large crops of beautiful persimmons. The other farmers who would show up to do their deliveries at restaurants and saw Soul Food Street Farms persimmons on the docks of those restaurants were like, well, Michael's <laughs> buying them from Chinatown, you know. And I guarantee you they are now planting their own, you know. But I think that this is um, the, the important part of this story is that we have to be willing to take risks. 
We have to push the edges. We have to provide a diverse range of foods to the changing populations uh, that are both ethnically and culturally that are uh, being represented. And, um, and I think that um, the possibilities are endless. You know, uh, We have to accept that the possibilities are endless, not just in things like persimmons, but in our ability to turn back what is currently, uh, we, we have essentially are on the edge looking down the precipice. We have to make a U-turn and go forward in, in a different way. So, yeah. Well, are you worried about climate change? Obviously, you are. How you're in the land, you've got your hands in the soil a lot of the time. Do you have hope that the land-based solutions that you might find in Paul Hawkins' Drawdown book will be eventually taken up, like the Cubans suddenly took up this out of necessity? Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm. I like to say I'm not a terribly optimistic person, but I'm a very hopeful person. <laughs> so, uh, and I think that. In particular, farmers have a very critical and huge role to play in how this can shift. Because I say in my in my book, my last book, I, in this Urban Food Manifesto, I ended by saying that the role of farmers in the future may be less about producing food for their populations and more about uh, sequestering water and carbon. We hold these big land, pieces of land. And we have the ability to use our farms as sponges, right? Not as sieves, <laughs> not to be ripping off and to be sending downstream, but as sponges. And this is a powerful role that we play, and we're learning about how to do that. There's a lot of people that are really digging into this. So I'm, I am hopeful. Fantastic. So thank you. So we've just been talking to Michael Abelman from Vancouver in Canada, and I'd like to thank him very much. So Mention the book. Oh, mention the book. What's the name? <laughs> Don't forget to check out the book, shameless as I am, Street Farm, Growing Food, Jobs, and Hope on the Urban Frontier. Fantastic. All right, so thank you, Michael, and salut, Babette. <laughs> You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on 3CR 855 AM. Tom Delaney lives a life of voluntary simplicity between India and Australia. He's written a book with his father, Mark, called Low Carbon and Loving It. So welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show, Tom. The launch of your book in Brisbane is sold out. So what does that say to you about our readiness to scale down our carbon footprint from the hefty 23 tonnes each per year that we're at now? Yeah, thanks, Vivian, and thanks for having me on the program. Yeah, well, I, I was very surprised too when our book launch sold out. So I guess it's, it's quite encouraging that it seems many Australians are willing to take the challenge of climate change seriously and start reducing our own carbon footprints, which, as you say, are quite high at the moment. You compare the life of your friends in India with the average life here and you use case studies. One is a person called Ruxana and you compare her life in a tiny house with her four children and husband in the poorer neighbourhoods of Delhi with a hypothetical Australian called Bruce. Just tell us about the differences between their carbon footprint. Um, the average Australian, who we, who we represent by a fictional character called Bruce, the average Australian has a carbon footprint of around 23 tonnes carbon dioxide equivalent per person per year, whereas the average Indian has only a carbon footprint of around 2 tonnes. So it's about a tenfold difference, a really, a really massive, uh, an order of magnitude difference. So the main, uh, there's, there's many reasons for that. Basically, people in Australia and India have 
very different lifestyles in terms of what we buy, how much we buy, the food we eat, how big the houses we live in, so forth. So um, to take one example, um, Bukhana lives in uh, a small one-room house. Um, we also live in a one-room house in India, by the way, because we try to live quite simply, like locals do. Whereas in Australia, many houses have you know, multiple bedrooms, garages, bathrooms, many, many kitchens, etc. So that much larger built uh, area entails more emissions both in the construction of the house, in the production of all that building material and energy required to construct the house, uh, and then also in the um, electricity required to have heating or cooling and lighting and refrigeration, all, all sorts of things inside the house. So that's, that's just one example uh, of the difference, differences between the average Indian lifestyle and the average Australian is house sizes are so much smaller in India. Yes, well, last year I interviewed somebody in India when they'd had an extreme heat wave and I think some of the temperatures were up into the 50s. And I wow. really feel that climate change is going to mean that people in our countries, rich yeah. countries, we're going to have to go really slow on the air conditioning and heating on, yeah. until it's carbon-free <laughs> so that those people can have some modicum yeah. of cooling, at least. We should live simply so they can simply yeah. live, you know, the old adage. Yeah, I, I do feel that way, Susan. So um, the economists say put it, is that we need to increase our consumption of goods and services so the economy grows, and that's good for Australians, and then the, the benefits of that will trickle down to the poor, both within Australia and overseas. Now, there may be some truth to that reasoning, but I think the opposite is probably more true, that the more resources we consume um, as Australians, the fewer resources are available for people in, in developing nations, um, including our friends in India, to attain the lifestyles that they desire. So I think... The, the planet's resources are finite, and we've got to come to terms with that truth. And that means the more we consume here in Australia, that does have impacts on other people in other parts of the world. I think your story of growing up in India and, in fact, celebrating the low-carbon life must make Westerners very uncomfortable because you were shocked when you came back to Australia to find us apathetic about climate change and not taking much responsibility. You know, we don't take personal responsibility. We, we criticise government policy, but lowering our own footprint, we just don't talk about it. Yet the tone of your book is not angry. How did your Indian experience propel you to come back and speak to us so clearly? On the tone of the book, it's, it's not angry because I'm not angry. <laughs> so I, I think I understand that many Australians are coming from, from a place of the social norm is uh, conspicuous consumption of um, having a big house, a big car, flying lots of holidays, so forth. So I understand that there are many social pressures that push people in that direction. So I'm not angry at anybody because I, I can see where people are coming from there. What, what my experience of India in, in India has proved uh, invaluable to me, though, is because it helps me resist that social pressure for myself. Coming to Australia periodically while I was growing up, I never really got into um, various you know, tech phases or wanting the latest iPhone or wanting uh, better toys or clothes for myself because I had friends in India who I knew were struggling to afford their school fees or struggling to have three square meals a day. So having the privilege of knowing people who are really struggling in their lives kind of is, is almost like a, an inoculation or an immunization against the bug of consumerism because I felt in myself 
how can I be demanding uh, more luxuries for myself when I know people personally who are going through really difficult times in life and lacking, lacking the basic necessities. I think if, if we in Australia had more experiences of meeting people on the margins of society, both in Australia and around the world, then perhaps we would come to realize that many of the things that are deemed necessary, uh, deemed necessary at the moment, be that a large uh, car or overseas holidays, eating each every day, all of those things that are deemed necessary or at least are the social norm at the moment, we'd come to question those things and realize them for what they truly are, which is luxuries and um, luxuries that are historically unprecedented. That's right. The previous generations wouldn't recognize the royal style life that we exactly. live <laughs> that's that's yeah. well look your book well, is you sorry your book is called low carbon and loving it but mm. what did your family find to love in a lifestyle that many westerners would find absolutely miserable <laughs> yeah well um a, a clarification first again. so if we're um, talking about in India who live in very poor communities which um, some would call slums when we're not upholding a lifestyle of poverty as the ideal, we think poverty is a very serious problem and um, something that needs to be eliminated. So lives of our friends like Roxana are tough. They often struggle to, to meet their basic needs of healthcare and education. Sometimes they even struggle to get enough to eat. So we're certainly not um, upholding that as something that everybody should do. What we are saying is that... Um, People can live low-carbon lives, like our, our, our many friends in India, uh, and still maintain a high quality of life, like, like many of our Australian friends. So let me give you a few examples of that. I ride uh, my bike a lot, and I really enjoy that. It gives, uh, it's a great way to stay fit. It's a great way of appreciating the, the travel time. Um, I find it, it's far easier to appreciate the natural environment. I ride past it. Than, rather than riding past it at a greater pace. So riding for me is a low carbon choice, but it's also a choice that enhances my quality of life, my health, my appreciation of nature. Um, it really adds meaning and joy to my life. Similarly, I think with many choices that we can make to live lower carbon lives, they actually bring um, sometimes surprising uh, side benefits to our lives. So from eating less meat, having health benefits, um, to living in a smaller house or living with, with others in a community house, to buying less stuff, um, having less clutter in our lives. I think many of these things provide um, health and community benefits. So living a low-carbon life is not uh, a life of uh, misery by any means. It's actually a life, I would, I would argue, of liberation, liberation from the dominant social norms which say that you need to earn more money and have more stuff in order to be happy. I think living a low-carbon life allows us to repudiate that lie and say that actually the things in life that make us happy are not the things that have a price tag and not the things that have a, a high-carbon footprint. Rather, they are spending time with our friends and family, enjoying music. It can be done with a very low-carbon footprint. Yeah. Well, look, I think you have the luck of living beside poorer people, but they're not. Yeah. 
destitute people. They're all doing interesting things with their lives and very communally minded people. But you could have gone to an Australian family, say, a hundred years ago and found exactly the same things. And you boil it down to five R's. Would you like to tell us the five R's? principle that perhaps if we were going to listen to this program and think all right all right i can make choices i'm not just a victim of this society i can actually yeah. choose these things yeah. what are the five r's that's right yeah so thanks again so the, the five r's that we're encouraging people to do in our book um encouraging as an alternative to the lifestyle of conspicuous consumption the five r's are running items until they wear out and repairing broken items when possible recycling items when they can't be repaired, reusing items unwanted by others, and responsibly purchasing new goods when we use ones that aren't available. So again, we're, we're promoting an alternative from the idea that um, whenever something goes out of fashion, you should throw it out and replace it with a new one that's bigger and better and fancier. We're challenging that idea and saying, no, we should treasure the things we have, keep using them, uh, while they're functional, and when they break, uh, repair them when possible, when we need to get an, another one, see if we can get one from friends or family or second-hand. So basically we're, we're arguing we should treasure our possessions rather than just discarding them easily. So move away from a lifestyle of um, throwaway consumerism towards a lifestyle of, of stewardship of mm. what things we do we are lucky enough to have. Yes, well, I think like Richard Dennis has just written a book which proposes exactly the same thing. Treasure things, don't have so many things. But look, I find the problem is things that are to do with lifestyle that we have become accustomed to in probably only two generations. One of them is travel, and I have a lot of friends who've retired and they travel overseas quite a lot. And so they get very defensive if I speak about that or sound Mm. accusing and I'm not accusing them just one or two people that's nothing in the great scheme of things but it's a whole Mm. lifestyle and tourism in general is is actually becoming a bit of a problem if you speak to people individually you can't win but I have been very fond of an idea about carbon allowances and I've spoken to a couple of people on the air about it but most people say look it's a time it's an idea before it's time we're not up to you know wartime to rationing yet of say petrol or of carbon intensive goods but I really like that idea because it is top-down and it's sort of equalising. People are all in it together. And then people might wake up to what is a climate emergency. They might wake up to it if if they were all aware of something together because this other method that you're saying, just choosing and, and influencing your friends, it just sounds like it might take too long to get that kind of change. Well, um, yeah, it's an interesting idea, idea Vivian. I, I really like what you're saying about uh, invoking the notion of World War II because as I've done reading on this issue of climate change, I've realised that, yes, I think that's the sort of public spirit that we need to evoke to solve this problem. We need to evoke a public spirit of willingness to sacrifice what we used to deem uh, luxuries or even necessities for our own lives, willingness to sacrifice those things for the greater good. Um, so in World War II, the public actually accepted these rationing schemes uh, and celebrated them as necessary for the war effort and I think that actually fostered a great sense of community spirit and everybody being in it together. I read a a remarkable study a while ago that in Britain life expectancy actually rose during World War II which is quite anti-intuitive because they were going through such a difficult time but life expectancy actually rose because 
partially of this, this sense of community togetherness, uh, the greater equality and uh, the wealthy being willing to chip in for the public good. So I think we do need to tap into that, sort of, that sentiment when we're tackling climate change because it does involve um, us as individuals making sacrifices in our own lives. I'm not sure about how good a, a top-down approach can be, particularly, particularly in the individualist um, West where we're very um, passionate about our own freedoms. Um, maybe it's plausible, I'm not sure. I think not many of my friends would subscribe to such an idea, <laughs> but um, I would probably be up for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well, you've been living in the country of Gandhi where... People were mobilised from the bottom up, weren't they? Yes. And, and the empire yes. tumbled. So you've probably got that e- example in your mind as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think climate change is similar to that, where um, in, in the case of the Indian independence movement, we think of Gandhi, and obviously a, a great leader and very instrumental in um, ending the era of British colonialism, but um, it wasn't just Gandhi alone who was able to um, bring those momentous changes. It was because millions of ordinary Indians subscribed to his philosophy and were willing to um, sacrifice themselves in following him. That was what um, led to the, the start of the new era of Indian independence. And I think it's the same in climate change. Of, of course, we'll have great figureheads and thinkers and leaders like Gandhi, but ultimately it will come down to millions of ordinary individuals um, like you and me being willing to put those words into practice in their own lives that's what's going to bring to bring about the momentous social changes that will be needed to transition to a, a low-carbon life. Right. Thank you. So, look, we've been talking to Tom Delaney. His book, Low Carbon and Loving It, written with his ma- father, Mark Delaney, is going to be launched in Brisbane tomorrow night. I wish you luck with that, Mark, and I hope that school teachers listening to this or parents listening to this will buy your book because it's set up perfectly for teaching and reading groups, study groups, you could just read these very short, very easy chapters with lots of little cartoons and geeky boxes and myth-busting boxes, little boxes just with facts in them. Um, it's a very nice book. It's fresh, too. It has a kind of fresh take. Yeah, no, I really liked it. I thought it was a very fresh take, and if I, I could see um, young people in school reading it, I think it would provoke them the right sort of conversations. So yeah. good luck with your launch, and could you just tell the listeners how they can get this book? Yeah, for sure. So um, you can go to the, the blog we have for this book, which is at www.lowcarbonandlovingit.wordpress.com. So if you go to that blog, you'll find details um, of where you can buy the book and also um, some material from the book. So yeah, please do get in touch. Um, we hope you find it uh, an interesting and enjoyable read. Thanks for joining us on the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. I've got to make this quick, so get a pen ready, because once I've thanked the guests, I'm going to give you an email address that, or two that you can write to to make a real difference. So thanks to Francis Jones from Western Australia, Michael Abelman from Canada, and Tom Delaney from India. We've had an urgent request from the Wangang Jabalingu people up in Queensland. They are in court today and there are two things you can do to help them stop the Adani coal mine, which would be a disaster for the climate. You can send a donation to their fighting fund at wanganjagalingu.com.au. That's 
W-A-N-G-A-N-J-A-G-A-L-I-N-G-O-U.com.au and you can write to the Premier of Queensland asking her to meet with the Wangang Jagalingu people instead of opposing them in court. Her email address is premier at premiers.queensland.gov.au. Thanks to the wonderful Vivian Langford, of course, and Roger Vice, who takes care of the podcast. My name's Andy. You can find this podcast at bze.org.